0: Thank you all for coming. I'm so thankful and grateful that every single one of you were able to come today on this Labor Day weekend. Um, we, We have started this series called The Kingdom. We have looked since the very beginning in Genesis and we've seen how this theme of the kingdom has developed throughout the Bible. We saw within Genesis this beautiful, beautiful picture in the Garden of Eden. We saw that humans were supposed to be God's representatives. But unfortunately, as we know, they failed. Yet God continued to desire to partner with humans. And we see this with the nation of Israel. God delivered the nation of Israel. And we saw last time that they were not perfect, but we saw the type of people who they were supposed to be. They were supposed to be a royal priesthood. They were supposed to be a holy kingdom, a kingdom that represented their king, God. But instead of relying on God and representing him, the Israelites complained against him. But yet God provided a way so that the rebellion, the sins of his people could be dealt with. Through animal sacrifice, animals would partially absorb the sins of these Israelites. And this worked for a while. Last time we met, we finished the Pentateuch. We finished the Torah. We finished the first five books of the Bible. Today, we are going to go into a new section. The Hebrew Bible considers this new section as the prophets. The English Bible considers it as the history books. We will look at Joshua and Judges. Next time we meet, however, we will not be going in the English Bible order, but we're actually going to go straight to 1 Samuel, which is the order that the Jewish Bible uses, which is probably the order that Jesus used. And I pray that for today, as we go through Joshua, as we go through Judges, I pray that we will learn on how God mercifully and graciously cares for all people. And he wants to give a king to rule rule a peaceful and prosperous Rule, to have this rule with his people that his people could experience shalom, peace, similar to the peace that we see in this proto-kingdom which was in Genesis in the Garden of Eden. Joshua is an exciting book, especially if you're into military literature. Because within Joshua, we see that the, the nation of Israel is finally conquering the promised land. God had promised Abraham this land, and this land, in this land, Israel would be God's people. My professor, Patrick Schreiner, he wrote on this, and he he said that the purpose of the land was this, as you could see up here. But what was the purpose of life in in the land? A few purposes rise to the surface. Most fundamentally, it was to be the home of God's people, Where they could commune with God, through this stability, they would also be a light to the nations. Remember, they were supposed to be a holy nation. They were supposed to be a light to the nation of Israel, this kingdom. The following slide says this. The kingdom promises concern an upward, involving God, an inward, communal impersonal with one another, an outward missional dimension. Israel had to realize that they could be a light to the nations only if they lived in a right relationship with God and with one another. In this land, in the promised land, Israel was supposed to have a beautiful relationship with God. They were supposed to have a great relationship with one another. And they were supposed to have a wonderful relationship with others. Here's a map of how their conquest was supposed to look like. I know it's not the greatest resolution, but you could get an idea of what they were supposed to conquer. And the colors there show us what tribe, what son of Israel would get what. And this conquest began at Shittim on the southeastern side. And they, they remember they were in the wilderness, they left Mount Sinai, and now they're going into the promised land. They were doing all of this under the leadership of Joshua, the disciple of Moses. Israel began the conquest by sieging Jericho. Here's a picture of that conquest. You could see that they went from the east side to the west side. But before going into the battlefield, before conquering Jericho, Joshua sent some spies to Jericho. When the spies arrived, they were almost captured but a prostitute rahab saved these spies here's the discussion that they had before rahab helped them escape joshua 2 21 through 22 says this you could see it in the screen it says agreed she replied let it be as you say so she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window When they left, they went into the hills and stayed there for three days until the pursuers had searched all along the road and returned without finding them. Rahab and the spies agreed because Rahab had helped the spies of Israel, had helped God's people. They had agreed if Rahab put a scarlet cord tied to her window, when Israel would conquer Jericho, the Israelites would spare Rahab. After Israel followed God's instruction to conquer Jericho by walking around Jericho seven days worshiping God, the Israelites welcomed Rahab and her family to God's chosen people. Joshua 6.25 tells us, But Joshua spared Rahab, the prostitute, with her family and all who belonged to her, because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho, and she lives among the Israelites to this day. Israel welcomed Rahab, welcomed her family and all who belonged to her. The end of this verse tells us that this outsider, that these outsiders, these people who were not part of Israel were still with the Israelites until the day that this verse was written. I love what Richard S. has said on this point. He's an Old Testament scholar, and he says, talking about Rahab, she is not distinguished from, but she is part of Israel. She has ceased to be a Canaanite or a non-Israelite and has now become an Israelite. God's kingdom has always been full of God's people. And God's people is not full of perfect people. No, God has always cared for the lost sheep, for the despised, for the reject, or in this case, for the prostitute. We, God God cares not not just for the perfect, not, not just for the Israelites, but we could see here that he cares for all people. Before Joshua led the conquest of Jericho, Joshua had an interesting encounter with a man who was actually the chief of God's army. Joshua 6:25 tells us this. Now, when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, "Are you for us or for our enemies?" He was basically trying to see who this this chief, who this person, who this military giant of God, if this person was favoring them or favoring the, the human enemies. But this person says, neither. He replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his people? Who is this man that appears to Joshua? We know that he is the commander of the army of God. And I I find it interesting that before Joshua is going to embark to this great battle, God sends a comforting sign through this commander. I like what Isaac of Nineveh said on this revelation. He was... A, a, he, 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 he was a Christian in the East early years. Um, and it says this. He said this. Divine providence surrounds all persons at all times. That there is something that we don't see. In this instance, we see that Joshua, his eyes were open to see the invisible, to see God's hands, to see this commander who was present. There's things that are taking place in a realm that we cannot see. Isaac of Nineveh, he continues by saying this. It is not visible except to those who have purified their souls of sin. And think about God at all times. To these it is luminously revealed at that time. Because when they have undergone great temptations for the sake of truth... Then they receive the faculty to perceive sensibly as if, with the eye, as if with eyes of flesh, also when necessary, even palpably, they could touch this invisible world sometimes. According to the kind and cause of the temptation, as if for greater encouragement. So he, here he's saying, sometimes we go to battles, but God may show us something to encourage us before we go into this battle. He says that this is the case with Jacob and Joshua, son of Nun, Hananiah and his companions, Peter and others to whom the form of a man appeared to encourage them and to console their faith. I have known of people having alleged experiences with the supernatural, with the invisible. And they have these experiences through certain rituals or psychedelics. And I'm not here to discredit their accounts, but according to the scripture, their, their experiences was probably negative. Because according to the Bible, the, these encounters with the invisible are positive and godly. They're supposed to encourage us to do God's will. As we see here, Joshua had encountered the invisible, and he was encouraged to do God's will. He was encouraged to go into battle. These experiences are not for us so we could boast and say, oh, I encountered the invisible. No. These experiences are not supposed to make us feel good, although they can, but that's not the purpose. The purpose of these experiences is to give us encouragement and to console our faith. To do what God wants us to do. That's what happened with Joshua. He had this supernatural experience and he was able to go to Jericho and win the fight. Within this interaction that Joshua had with the commander of the Lord's army, Joshua asked the man, are you with us? Are you favoring us? Or are you favoring the human enemies? The man answered that he was for neither. He wasn't favoring one kingdom or the other. You may be thinking as you read the conquest that God had in Joshua through the Israelites, that God is only for the Israelites. But this interaction shows us that that is not the case. God was still for all people. While Joshua and the Israelites were conquering, it would be helpful to bear in mind that God is for all people. Joshua contains some violent battles, but I encourage you to do research and see, okay, why these things happen. I encourage you, maybe check out Bible Project. They have a cool article on this that shows us the figure of speeches that are taking place and how evil Canaan, the Canaanites were. In Canaan, there were some evil and nasty people. There were some people who sacrificed their children to their gods. It was a nasty and vile people who did deserve judgment. In Joshua 6.12, we read the military campaign of Israel. Here's a picture of the southern campaign. You could see them go down and conquer. Then they eventually conquer the north. As you could see in the following picture, and through it all, as I mentioned, God shows that he is more than just, than just the God of Israel. He is not just the God of Israel, but the God of all people. We see this with Rahab and her family. And what they packed that the, that the Gibeonites, this people group, made with the Israelites. After the battles, Joshua distributes the promised land to Israel according to its tribes. Before I show you the picture, let me re-show you what the Israelites intended to conquer and how they would divide the land. So as you can see here, this is the picture that I showed in the beginning. They were supposed to conquer a lot. Now here's the picture of what they actually conquered. It's not as big. It's smaller. While it's impressive that this, These slaves from Egypt conquered a lot. They did not not conquer what they were supposed to. They still had a lot left. Remember, in the following slide, this is what they were supposed to conquer. And that's not what they conquered. They conquered a lot, but they didn't fully conquer what God had given them. Israel had significant victories, but not full victory. They had victory, but at the same time, it was a tragedy. For they did not take everything that God had promised them. Now let us see how God's people lived in the land. Remember in the beginning when I quoted my professor Patrick Schreiner, the Israelites were supposed to grow upwardly, grow in their relationship with God. They were supposed to grow inwardly, grow with one another. And they were supposed to grow outwardly. They were supposed to be a light to the nations if they lived in the right relationship with God and with one another. But we will see in Judges that this is not the case. The Israelites failed to follow the kingdom promises. We see a common pattern in Judges that is frankly saddening. In Judges, we find this downward Spiral. And there is a picture on the slide that maybe could help you envision this. Israel would sin, fall captive to a foreign nation, and therefore become um, slaves. Sometimes the Israelites would cry out for salvation. God, because of his mercy, grace, and faithfulness, would raise a leader, otherwise known as a judge, who would save the people from oppressive captivity. And the nation would have peace for a number of years. But Israel would return to sinning and would fall under the same cycle. Yet God showed mercy. And you could see in the screen, you could see on the top, they would sin. They would fall into idolatry. Then they would become servants again, similar to how they were in Egypt. They would become oppressed by a foreign nation. And then they would cry out to God through supplication. And then they would have salvation through a judge. And then they would have peace This cycle goes over and over again. Sin, oppression, then supplication, they cry out. Then God brings a leader to bring salvation. Then they encounter peace, but then they sin again. And then they suffer oppression, and it goes over and over and over again. Judges 2.11-13 tells us, it is the first incident in Judges that we see the evil that they did. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors. They left the one who had delivered them from Egypt, the one who had given them victory, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served Baal Baal. And the Ashtoreths. Instead of the nation of Israel worshiping the Lord, they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. By being like the other nations, by worshiping the gods of the other nations, by worshiping Baal and Ashtoreth. Despite God delivering them from the mighty hand of Egypt, Israel forsook Yahweh to worship the gods of the Canaanites. And the gods of the Canaanites weren't great. While vegetation was important, Baal was only the god of the storm and rain and thus contributed to vegetation. Ashtrath was the concert or partner of Baal. She was the goddess of war and was also associated with fertility. So we have this god, Baal, who, who brings rain, who brings, who brings the storm. Yet they have forgotten that God, he is the one who created everything. And here they're worshiping Ashtaroth. Ashtaroth, yes, she's the god of fertility, but God is the giver of life. Some of these religions that followed these gods practiced child sacrifice. It's crazy to think that this nation who was chosen to serve God, the God of all the universe... Chose to be common, to be like the other nations by worshiping the gods of its neighbors. While we may be judgmental towards these Israelites, we may find ourselves in a similar spot. We have been chosen to serve God. He has saved us, yet we worship the gods of the present world. We worship money, fame, power. Despite the actions of Israel that led them to a downward spiral, God would raise judges to save the Israelites from their oppression. Judges 2.16 says this, Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. When you think about the word judge, what comes to your mind? You probably think about a person who works in a courtroom, who maybe is wearing a robe uh, and is an arbiter of the law. But that's not what we're talking about here when we're talking about judges. John D. Berry gives us a summary of what a judge would be. Shofetim, judges, does not necessarily designate arbiters of law. The judges are mainly military leaders. The term refers elsewhere to general political and military leadership rather than judicial function. Only Deborah is described as sitting in judgment of the people's legal case. Compare Moses, and you could look at these references. So judges weren't necessarily these people who would sit in a courtroom and say, okay, you're guilty or you're not guilty or facilitate the law. No, no. These judges were people who God raised as leaders who would save the Israelites from foreign oppression. And peace would come as a result. Look at Judges 3.11. So the land had peace for 40 years until Othaniel, who was also a judge, son of Kenaz, died. But we see after this verse of peace in the following verse, the Israelites continued their downward spiral. Judges 3.12. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the lord and because they did this evil the lord gave eglon king of moab power over israel then we go to judges 331 42 and it says after ehud came shamgar son of anath who struck down 600 philistines with an ox goad he too saved israel so there's salvation again for israel but verse 4 Again, the Israelites, or chapter 4, again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, now that Ehud was dead. So, we find salvation, we find peace, then they do evil again. Judges 5.31, then the the land had peace 40 years. But again, Judges 6.1, during Gideon's lifetime, they had peace again. But Judges 10.6 says this, Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And they served the Baals again and the Ashrath, the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. We see this cycle over and over and over again. Peace, then destruction, peace, and then destruction. The cycle continues until we eventually get to the birth of one of the most famous judges, Samson. God raised Samson to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines. When Samson was born, he was under the Nazarite vow. Those who took this vow consecrated themselves to God, and it consisted of this. This is what the Nazarite vow, this promise that humans made to God, some Israelites did, And it was a promise of consecration. It consisted of not touching or eating anything unclean. Unfortunately, Samson would break his vows a number of times. Uh, It it also consisted of... he, he He would touch things that were unclean a number of times. It also consisted of drinking wine or other fermented drink. He would do this sometimes at parties, maybe for his wedding. And also, they were not supposed to cut their hair. This was a specific vow that he was supposed to follow. Because of this vow, he's not supposed to touch or eat anything unclean. He's not supposed to drink wine. And he's also not supposed to cut his hair because he was following this vow. Here's a picture of a time that he ate from a dead animal. He ate honey. He's probably feeling pretty good while he's eating this honey but while he's eating this honey although that may feel like yes i've done it i finally have honey there's a tragedy because he's breaking his promise with god he's not supposed to touch an uncle a dead animal that was considered to be unclean In another picture god gave him strength to defeat armies and he used jawbone he had a victory but this was also a tragedy because this jawbone was a dead animal came from a dead animal he defeated the armies but while he was defeating the armies he was breaking his promise with God and eventually Samson was so careless that he told Delilah the secret about his strength he thought that he he expressed that it was his hair and delilah cut his hair whereby he ended up captured by the Philistines and was tortured by having his eyes plucked out Samson had broken his vow damaged his relationship with God as Israel had as Cain had as Adam had as many of us have. But Samson, in his final moments of life, prayed to God. Judges 16 28 tells us Then Samson prayed to the Lord Sovereign Lord, remember me. Please, God, strengthen me just once more. And let me, with one blow, get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. And God did not point fingers. He did not say, hey, you've broken this covenant, this promise that you made to me. He didn't say you messed up here and here. But instead, he gave Samson strength to deliver, to defeat the enemies of Israel and to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines. As you could see in the following picture. Consequently, because God was gracious to Samson, Israel experienced peace again. But despite God saving Israel from the Philistines through Samson, Israel continued to be in a downward spiral. But now there's an emphasis on there being no king. That instead of doing what is fitting in God's eyes, the Israelites were doing What they saw fit. So there's a new emphasis on the Israelites doing what they saw as good. And an emphasis of there being no king. Look at Judges 17.6. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Judges 18.1. In those days, Israel had no king. Judges 19.1. In those days, Israel had no king. And in the last verse, Judges 21.25 tells us, in those days... Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. When we read about the Israelites doing what they saw fit, we should be reminded of Eve. Remember in the garden, she ate from this tree of knowledge. She saw it good for her. And unfortunately, she did what was wrong in the eyes of God. This is what's taking place with the Israelites. They saw that their actions were good. They saw fit. But while they were doing what was fit in their eyes, they were disobeying God. And as I mentioned, there's also an emphasis of there being no king. Judges were helpful. Yes, they were good. They, they, they brought peace. But for a kingdom, God desired that this kingdom would eventually have a human king. Remember, God had made a promise to Eve, In the garden, Genesis 3, that through her seed, somebody would come who would be the serpent crusher. And we certainly see in Judges that the serpent is still alive and the poison of the serpent is still alive. So there was still a need for a king to come. Patrick Schreiner tells us about this idea about the king not being present. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Although Israel already had a divine king, they needed a leader who would embody the law of the Lord, rescue them from their enemies, and lead the people in righteous living. We will see this next time when we meet, next Sunday at 2. The desire for a king was not wrong, for God was making them into a great nation. This is a problem, as we will note next time. The problem was that they wanted a king Like the other nations. Next time we meet, we will look at two kings. One wasn't that great, and the other had a great image and is well known. But for now, let us reflect on what we have covered within Joshua and Judges. We may be quick to judge the failures of Joshua's conquest or the idolatry of Israel, but we find ourselves in the same boat. Look at what Origen, whom I have been becoming a fan of recently, wrote about when we sin. Origen said this, whenever we sin and are taken captive to the law of sin, therefore we bend our knees to Baal. But we are not called to this, nor do we believe in this, such that we would again become servants of sin and again bend the knee to the devil. So when we sin, when we rebel against God, it's similar to what happened in the story of Adam and Eve when they bent bent their knees to the serpents. And now we're seeing the Israelites bend their knees to these idols. And we bend our knees to, as I mentioned before, fame, power, sin. Instead, our calling and the purpose of our faith is both to bend the knee at the name of Jesus. For at the name of Jesus, every knee bends in heaven and on earth and in hell. And to bend the knee to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. When we sin, we bend our knees to the gods of the world. When we bend our knees to the gods of the world, we become their servants. These gods, these sins may be arrogance, sex, money, fame, power, pride, jealousy, hate, or anger. We should not bend our knees to Baal, to these so-called gods, who are really not gods. Instead, we should follow our Christian faith by bending our knees at the name of Jesus and following him. But maybe you feel dirty, like the Israelites, going in a downward spiral, having victory, having peace, but at the same time, right after you have a victory, you, you encounter tragedy. Maybe you feel like you've conquered so much, but yet it's a tragedy because you didn't conquer what God has given you, what he has fully given you. Maybe you feel messed up like Rahab and feel that you cannot meet with a holy God and follow him. God, however, still wants you to be part of the kingdom. And just as God had the grace for Samson. He, our king, Jesus, has grace for you. And as he saved Rahab from destruction, he could save you through his blood. Through the blood of Jesus, you can be saved from destruction, saved from chaos, and encounter peace. Here's what Origen said on this. And it's an interesting interpretation, although it's probably not grammatical, but it is an interesting example that he gives uh, just looking back at Rahab. And he found images within the story of Rahab. He he said this. She, Rahab, herself puts the scarlet-colored sign in her house through which she is bound to be saved, From the destruction. Of the city. No other sign. Would have been accepted. Except the scarlet colored one. That carried the sign. Of blood. For she knew. There was no salvation for anyone. Except in the blood of Christ. Of course Rahab did not. Know the. The incarnate. Jesus Christ for he would come later on. But. Origin, he reflected and he noticed this, this thread is red like the blood of Christ. And it was only through this red cord that Rahab put on her window that she would be saved. And she, he's making the comparison that we, not through anything else, we too are saved only through the blood, which is red like the scarlet cord, through the blood of Jesus There's nothing else that could save us. I encourage you today as we end, as the worship team gets ready, to be part of God's people. Accept the sacrifice of Jesus. He can take your dirt to the grave. He can wash it away. And now you can join the king of life instead of worshiping the kings of death. Have victory, even if you have just experienced a great tragedy. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing everyone here, Lord. And I pray that while we are experiencing victory, uh, let us be aware that maybe we're also experiencing tragedy. And maybe we are at that low point where we're feeling like we're oppressed because we're bending our knees to other gods. Lord, maybe we feel like we're dirty, unclean, like Rahab. But God, remind us that you want to bring us peace, that you want us to be part of your kingdom, to be in this peaceful place, Lord. I pray, God, that everyone here with their mess up with their sins, Lord, that they may see that you are merciful, that you are gracious. Jesus, you bring forgiveness. On that cross, you take our sins. When we believe in you, when we apply the blood over us, we will no longer suffer destruction, but we will encounter peace. God, may you be with us throughout this week and let us have victory. It might be like we're in the spiral, downward spiral, Lord, but as we go with this week, let us have victory. In Jesus' name, amen.